If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Liz Russell booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dana Weeks and Dave Woodard. Here's Scott Thompson. He's a man of few words today. Good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Weber on the board. The gang's all here. Feel free to jump into the fun. Love to hear from you. You can send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Man, what a wild weekend, especially for those out on uh, the East Coast or for those out on the East Coast Maritimes uh, provinces uh, as well who are uh, obviously rebuilding, uh, trying to get the power back on, uh, which is obviously the biggest issue uh, uh, with them at this point. So we'll talk more about that coming up in uh, just a sec. we got a jam-packed show for you. Uh, don't forget the poll question of the day waiting for you on our Twitter page. Uh, as of today, all adults in Ontario can now get their uh, Omicron-targeted COVID-19 uh, vaccine. Are you going to get one? Um, you know what? I was just inquiring about this last week, and I think, you, you know, I, I wasn't sure, so don't quote me on it because I haven't got the boost yet. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think you can, you know, hey, you got one? Throw it in. But uh, Or, well, I went to the website to make an appointment, and everything is available. So put it that way. Uh, so it should be pretty easy to get it. Uh, feel free to weigh in on that. Love to hear from you. Uh, Fridays, should Canada have dropped its COVID-19 border restrictions long ago or is now the right time? Uh, 58%, almost 60% said uh, Canada has waited too long, as of course we have. We did with everything. We were late for getting the vaccines. We're late for dropping all of the uh, pandemic restrictions. It's just we're usually anywhere from four, six, eight months behind all of this. Uh, whether it was, uh, remember way back when, when we didn't have any vaccine and then we had to wait and wait and wait and wait and wait and wait. And then it was the 80 year olds get it, then the 70, then the 60, then the 50 and all that sort of stuff. So we were quite a ways behind, which I think was one of the reasons there was such a strong uptake. You tell somebody that they got to get something and then that they don't have it. <laughs> we don't have it. You know, you're going to, you're going to increase the demand, low supply, high demand, kind of like our housing. So uh, I guess no wonder we have the high rates that we do. But finally, uh, our prime minister has uh, decided it's, it's you know, sh- 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 listen. Yes, that's the mayor of Niagara Falls. You can hear screaming and yelling uh, all the way from here. Uh, we'll talk about that coming up uh, a little later on. So uh, jump in there. Love to hear from you for the poll question of the day on our Twitter page. Also, uh, Hammerhead Trivia coming up and your chance to see Colin James, First Ontario uh, Hall on October 8th. And uh, we've got your tickets coming up with Hammerhead Trivia. That's at 5 o'clock, right after uh, the 5 o'clock news. All right. Um, the big story, obviously, uh, is in regard to uh, Hurricane Fiona and what has been going on in uh, over the course of the weekend as they try to get things back up and running. Here is Global News' Alicia Drouse on the power scenario uh, going on and how they are trying to get things back up and running. Power is the priority because there are so many people without power. So it's really just getting people back on the grid, getting communication back up. So at the peak in Nova Scotia, over 415,000 customers were without power. That's about three quarters of the province. Now, we have had the chance to restore it to quite a few people, but there are still 190,000 customers in Nova Scotia without power. In Prince Edward Island, at their peak, 95% of the island was without power. 
restoration there is going a bit slower. They don't have quite as many resources and the storm hit harder there as well. So they actually were delayed in getting to even start restoration to begin with. And so still 93% of the island is without power. So that's going to be the priority over the coming days. Uh, and as the prime minister mentioned, uh, military on the way to help with the cleanup so those crews can get to where they need to do to do their work. Uh, here's uh, Alicia talking about the aftermath and support. We have evacuation centers for anyone who is kind of impacted and needs a place to stay. There are comfort centers for, for people who need to go charge devices and warm up and things like that. We also have the military coming in to Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Island, Newfoundland. There are about 100 uh, military members in each province right now to assess damage and more will come once we kind of know the full extent. As well, we are getting financial aid from the federal government and the federal government has also said that they will be matching donations made to the Red Cross by Canadians for Fiona relief over the next 30 days. So lots of support. We also have power crews coming in from Ontario, coming in from Maine to help out with recovery efforts. All right, and uh, you, you, we, we talked about this on Friday, and we're going to talk to uh, some of the guests that we had on on Friday, including that uh, person who was going to the wedding in the fire hall. Remember that? We'll get the story there uh, as well. But, uh, Will, if you can pull up that uh, clip from uh, Anthony Farnell, our global news uh, meteorologist. He was uh, out there, and, you know, some of the things that you don't realize in regard to, uh, obviously, the power and, and making sure people are safe and so on, uh, but once that's done, it's the sheer damage. And not only to homes and such and, and infrastructure and power grids and what have you, but also trees that are uh, decades, 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 and in some cases over 100 years old. Uh, here's what Anthony had to say about that. In Sydney, there, there are a lot of, or there were more, but there are a lot of very large 100-plus-year-old trees. And so many of them, as you go street to street, have come crashing down. Some very hard with a thud and on houses or on cars, uh, definitely on power lines. And that's the big problem for not just the, the electrical crews, the, the line crews that are here en masse from Ontario, Quebec, the rest of the Maritimes. They're all here working together, coordinated efforts. But they're needing to call in the, the Forest Service because they don't have big enough chainsaws or, or the machinery to remove these massive trees that have come down and crashed into the, the power lines. Anthony Farnell, Global News uh, meteorologist, talking about the aftermath of uh, Fiona. Uh, coming up moments from now, we will uh, go live there and get a, a, an update from uh, Global News and, and where they are at this point uh, after Fiona and recovery such. And uh, as we've heard, obviously getting power up and running is uh, is the biggest priority right now. Also, uh, coming up this hour, Ontario government fighting $800,000 for after-school activities. We'll talk about that with Neil Lumsden, uh, Hamilton East, Stony Creek, MPP in a bit. Also, uh, Super Bowl and the halftime show has been announced. Uh, do you care? Uh, it's Rihanna. Do you care now? A lot of people are uh, upset. Well, I shouldn't say that, but a rock station that I listened to, including uh, uh, Y, was saying, you know what? We need a little bit more uh, power, a little bit more metal. Uh, what happened to rock and roll? Or is that just all the old farts? Where's Metallica? Uh, we'll have that discussion coming up a little later on. 
Obviously, a heck of a weekend for those on the East Coast uh, getting blasted with Fiona and uh, power outages and, and such. And, uh, you know, it's amazing whether it is the winter time, whatever the season is. Uh, Maritimers, uh, East Coasters, they're a hardy bunch. Uh, but man, you've, uh, you gotta wonder when, uh, you get something like this going on and all of a sudden literally take, uh, PEI, 95% of the power. Uh, out on the island. Uh, an unbelievable hit again. How are they making out? Let's bring in Graham Benjamin, online producer, reporter with Global News. He's with us now. Graham, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Hello, Scott. Yes, I'm uh, doing just fine out here in Halifax area. I, You know, uh, obviously the devastation is huge. We can see that from the images we're seeing. But uh, what about death and injury? We've heard of uh, at least one woman that lost her life uh, as a result of this storm. Any more you can tell us on, on that or other injury? Yeah, Scott, unfortunately we did receive uh, news uh, this afternoon pretty much that uh, another death did occur. It's made aware to the RCMP recently, released to the public. Uh, an 81-year-old man with dementia sadly disappeared in the Prospect area. So Prospect kind of towards Peggy's Cove area right along the coast. This man disappeared Friday night, and unfortunately they did confirm that um, this gentleman was washed out to sea. So, you know, considering how big and 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 how uh, uh, historic some people used to describe this storm, that there wasn't more injury. I guess this has something to say for the preparedness and and what you were all prepared and getting ready for uh, days in advance. Well, yeah, whenever these storms do happen, you do see that preparedness happen. As you mentioned, we've had uh, Hurricane Dorian 2019 in October where, you know, another big storm. We saw a huge crane fall in an apartment complex that was under construction. Then the next year we had Hurricane Teddy, which wasn't as severe, but with Dorian uh, kind of in the rearview mirror, preparations were happening as well two years later uh fiona happens preparations happened again and, and again we know that those two deaths are are what are reported but the, the full scope is still not completely understood especially mm-hmm. in areas like cape breton like in prince edward island that's what the military has been brought in for they're kind of doing these wellness checks going around community to community seeing if there's any uh, additional damage additional you know, injuries that may have happened in homes where people have been in contact. So that's a big role of what the military is going to bring in uh, here in the days to come. We're seeing some incredible pictures, especially along coastal areas of the devastation. Give us an example of of how severe it is. And obviously power outages quite significant in, in, in any progress being made there. Well, yeah, I mean, areas along the coast are the ones that got hit hard. When you look kind of right in the metropolitan area in Halifax, you know, there is damage. There are down trees, trees hanging on wires, things of that nature. But it's when you did along the coast and when you see kind of the, the storm surge that occurred there, the high winds uh, gusts up to 170 kilometers an hour for some areas, like in Anaganish, where St. Francis Xavier is, Cape Breton, as mentioned, Prince Edward Island. That's where you're seeing these astounding images, just wind blowing into people's homes breaking windows uh which is glass over people's beds over their floors it really it really is astounding images that we're seeing from those those coastal communities but again when it comes to kind of that metropolitan area unlike in dorian which actually got hit harder for the downtown core uh we're, we're seeing some significant damage and damage that's expected to to take weeks to recover from and what about the power grid graham 
Yeah, I mean, like you mentioned off the top there, 95%. I think it's down to 93% for Prince Edward Island at this point, but still a tremendous amount of work to do on the island there. Uh, Newfoundland experiencing much of the same issues. Uh, Cape Breton, specifically for Nova Scotia, is where the most significant number of power outages have happened. Uh, about 175,000 Nova Scotia power customers currently in the dark, and that's just customers, so we know there's multiple people within those households, you know, a million people in Nova Scotia, you're looking at still 20% of the province still not with, uh, without power in the dark. We actually just know, uh, saw that the province announced additional funding for uh, people who have been without power for over 48 hours. So every Nova Scotian is getting $100 right now for, you know, food that they may have uh, had to throw out as a result of uh, power outages thousand dollars for anyone who's had to be evacuated who's receiving uh support from the canadian red cross so we are seeing that provincial funding uh come in that was announced about an hour and a half ago are people hunkering down where they are even without power are you seeing them show up uh in great numbers to evacuation centers well uh, yeah there was definitely the apartments in the in the halifax area where people are going to those evacuation centers not as significant i'd say you know that you're seeing a, a uh, a couple dozen, maybe a little over a hundred, depends on what, what area you go to. Uh, I've only seen specific to the Halifax area, so that's really all I can speak to on the uh, evacuation front. But with the hunkering down, it feels like when people powers out, they go out in the community and they want to see the damage, the visuals, the uprooted trees, the down power lines. But that's actually something Nova Scotia EMO is recommending people not do and that they stay home and that they you know spend that time with the family members get the board games out get the uh, books the flashlights things of that nature that's what they're kind of recommending people do in the in the interim while nova scotia power um works with crews from uh new england from maine from ontario quebec who have all converged to atlanta canada to help with this restoration effort graham benjamin with us online producer reporter with global news out in halifax talking about fiona and the aftermath and the cleanup graham thanks so much for the time much appreciated be well good luck thank you Scott. appreciate it take care you're listening to the hamilton today podcast from 900 chml remember we were uh, talking on friday about the, the with the the woman who was determined her friend was getting married and they were actually moving the reception into a fire hall because they knew they would not lose power and uh yeah how the wedding go we'll find out just uh a little later on one of the bright stories to come out of uh, all of this all right uh the ontario government is providing eight hundred thousand dollars for after school activities for kids and youth in priority neighborhoods in the hamilton area to talk more about all of this a name you recognize neil lumsden with us hamilton east stony creek mpp and minister of tourism culture and sport and with us now neil thanks for the time i hope you're doing well Hey, Scott. Uh, great to join you. And I am doing well. Thanks. Even though it's a little cloudy, and I do like the idea of getting married in a fire hall. I mean... Why not? Like, if you wanted to book yeah. one, how difficult would it be? Probably the only time you can get one is during, you know, a tropical storm or a hurricane or that sort of thing, right? Well, and, and the uh, other thing is that supposedly they have just the guys who and gals who cook are outstanding. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you got, you know, the perfect... <laughs> 
That's right. And that's right. And you know, uh, you got a place to crash as well. So yeah. I mean, it's perfect. So and you got the pole, and there's all kinds of fun yeah. that could go on the there. Yeah, it's could be had. Yeah, that's right. Know. You know what, Neil? As you're new to politics, this is something perhaps not, uh, municipalities could do to earn extra <laughs> money. Anyway, all right, let's yeah, move on. God, yeah, okay. I know you're very creative. So, uh, so first of all, too much hot water. There you go. So, first of all, congratulations uh, on the new post. Uh, how has it been so far? What's some of the biggest challenges for you uh, getting into politics? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I haven't been asked that directly. I've been asked how it's going. and It's been a little bit, at least earlier, going of like drinking water out of a fire hose. And my goal was not to get my head blown off my shoulders, which I haven't. Uh, I've run into a, a lot of great people. And uh, the ministry that I have been uh, given is one that's sort of right right down the center for me with respect to my history and not only sport, but uh, the business that I ran from a tourism perspective and events that we would run. And uh, it's, uh, it's a real nice fit. And I tell you what, I've, a lot of very, very good people that care a lot about public service. And uh, it's crazy. I mean, there isn't, because we were sitting for a bit, and normally they're not in in the summer that took away the, my opportunity to get out to reach a lot of stakeholders. And I'm going to start to do more of that now uh, before the end of October. But it, uh, it, it's different from the perspective of, you know, business and day-to-day business is one thing. In, in government, it changes. It can change in an hour or a half an hour. Uh, but the good news is, and the plan is to do a lot of good things and i'm a big fan of the premier and 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 his plan so it's a nice fit for me so um you know as you mentioned you've done a lot of things sport business what have you lots of opportunity i'm guessing why did you decide to get into politics what was the draw what made you say i i gotta get involved here well i i semi-retired and uh when i was at brock university really enjoyed and and the people Mm -hmm. and what i was doing up there he thought, okay, it's, you know, I'll sit back and take it easy. And then COVID started, and I had a couple other side things going. And one day, sitting on the porch in uh, the house in Hamilton, uh, I was talking to a, a longtime friend of mine, and I was, I was really kind of disappointed, in, and this isn't specific, this is in general terms, of a lack of leadership when it came to when things got tough. Everyone were always pointing fingers, but there were only very, there were very few people, and I believe one of them, I know one of them is the premier, who said, "Yeah, I'll take some hits, but we're going to do some things, and if we don't get that right, we'll do it again. But we're going to try to fix this thing, and and not blame it on anybody." And I thought we need more of that. And I said that through a conversation to a buddy, and the next thing I knew, I was talking to somebody in the party, and five months later, um, I agreed to my hat in the ring in Hamilton East Stony Creek, which was a, a riding that had been he's NDP for a long, long time. And uh, I, and I, and honestly, I love challenges. And one of the reasons I like coaching so much, which I've done a lot of over the years, is is you're helping make things better for people. Not always a hundred percent, but you're you're doing things to help young people. And I can do a lot of that in this ministry. So uh, I got lucky. Do you get the feeling that a lot of people are feeling that frustration that you're feeling that, um, you know, something, something's not right right now? Yeah, I, I think it's everyone is, um, I want to say nervous, but that's the wrong, 
um, term to use. I think everyone is waiting for another shoe to drop. I, I do believe yeah. from people that I've talked to out there that they're very optimistic. I, I, the other thing, Scott, that I have found is um, people that people have used this experience in the last two years to make their businesses, their community outreach, whatever they're doing stronger because they've had to look outside the box as the expression goes and find ways to do what they do in a different way. Hmm. And that, that gives them another arrow in their quiver, a couple of arrows in their quiver. And they, when you match that to going back to whatever semi normal is to what they've done in their business operations, whether it's running a festival, whether it, it doesn't really matter, then they're better at what they're doing now than they were beforehand. And I think that's a real tribute to, I think, how, how many really good people there are out there that don't just sit back and go, oh, well, yeah, there's nothing I can do and nothing about this. I'm just mm -hmm. going to let it pass versus saying, you know what? I'm not going to let it kick me. And if it does kick me, I'm going to kick back. And I'm going to keep going until I get this. You know, we don't know what the next year is going to look like or the next couple of years, really, uh, because of what this virus is, how it's changed the world. But I do know a lot of people that I've run into, most of them are optimistic that they're better than they were before and things are going to be okay. And I think the more we believe that, the more we'll make it so. It's amazing how how situations like this do, in the end, create uh, opportunity for people. All right, let's talk about the 800000 coming into the Hamilton uh, yeah. area for the kids, where this is going to go. I mean, one of the things that's, that's great about getting here in COVID is the kids are back playing football again or, yeah. or wherever and back outside. So talk about this uh, about this money. Well, it's great. It's uh, I mean, it's a total of $13.5 through uh, the Ontario After Schools program. Um, 110 organizations through 2022-23. And, and, you know, I had a chance being at uh, the Boys and Girls Club this morning on Ellis, on Ellis Avenue or Ellis Street in Hamilton uh, and, and really was, you know what, just coming out of what I said, I was so impressed with the people that are there, the staff, their attitude and their desire to really do some good things. And it isn't just about recreation. It's about taking the youth of today, not unlike my approach has been for coaching and a lot of, I mean, thousands of people out there, they coach to help people. These people uh, in the facility, I mean, it, and it is a wonderful facility. It's got a pool. It's got uh, an, an area for activities, indoor and outdoor. It's a daycare. Uh, I mean, it's, it's really from kindergarten to high school. And they're making a difference in introducing young people to a lot of different things through activity, both stimulation physically and mentally and emotionally. It's not just about, okay, come in and in the old days, you know, you go to a drop-in center and throw a basketball around for about three hours and get all sweaty and go home. This is a little bit different where there, you know, the 20 plus thousand children and youth that are going to get a, take advantage of this through great direction and leadership from people that are running the programs in their facilities. And, I was just, I was, honestly, I was taken back today. Not that I wasn't expecting it to be this good, but just the passion about, hey, we, we're going to make a difference here and because somebody has to. And uh, that's how I felt after I was through to the point where I said, hey, look, you know, can you sponsor kids here? And they said, yeah, I said, good. I'm going to sponsor some kids. Not a lot of dough, but we need to do more things like that to allow young people have an opportunity that I had and you had in your profession 
and personal life. And, and I've been very lucky with, my, with my, what I've had and my kids. So um, it's about preparing the future. And our future is the young people. And those that aren't as lucky as we are should have the same breaks and opportunities. And that's what this is all about. So it's, it's money really well spent. And it's money that's being really well used and, and activated in, in the areas and the cities that need it the most. All right, I can't let you go, Neil, without asking you uh, Commonwealth bid game, uh, Commonwealth uh, Games bid. Any news? Anything you can tell us there? Any inside info? No, you know what? I, I've heard about it. I've seen a little bit of information. I haven't sat down and had a briefing or a conversation with anybody about it. I, I mean, the Commonwealth Games is exciting. I mean, personally, you know, I, I think it's great. I know there's a lot of work to be done. I believe it's also an anniversary, is it not? The hundredth anniversary. Absolutely, uh, yes. So, I mean, there's so many good things that come that come from it. 2030, it's a ways off, but I, I certainly know from running world cycling and only having these 18 or 20 months to prepare, there was a lot to do, and that was just, you know, a couple of events uh, during one week period. Uh, there's a lot of work that has to go in the Commonwealth. So, I'm excited to hear more about it and what it presents from an opportunity perspective for not only in the Hamilton, but Ontario itself in general. Get ready. Your phone's about to start ringing. Uh, Neil Lumsden <laughs> with us, Hamilton East, Stony Creek MPP and Minister of Tourism, Culture, and Sport. Neil, thanks so much for the time uh, and the announcement. Be well. Hey, Scott. I appreciate the time. Uh, good to talk with you. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Rihanna, who you just heard, going to be headlining the Super Bowl halftime show uh, next year. I'm listening to uh, a rock radio station this morning, and they're like, what? What? What is going on? Where's the rock and roll? Where's where's Metallica? That was the where's Metallica? Why don't they have and you know Metallica is pretty, you know these guys aren't stooges. They don't know how to make it happen. Um, and and but instead it's Rihanna. And these people were saying of all the football fans out there, uh, how many uh, football fans have Rihanna on their uh, on their playlist? And it's like well the females probably do. So which someone said well how many of those are there? Uh, so let's bring in, uh, bring in Eric Alper, and he can weigh in. Publicist and music commentator, he is with us now. Eric, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Everybody's great. You know, this is this just proves it. Having a child is so expensive. Rihanna is going back to work. <laughs> Inevitably, that's what happened. It's it's the dang kids that get you back right? there. Yes, exactly. And now she's going back. And and look, I I understand that Metallica thing. I understand the rock thing. But ever since that the Super Bowl did a deal with Rock Nation, that is the mm-hmm. record label that is headed up by Jay Z. Um, Jay Z is going to want to have his his own artists on there, his own people, his crew, uh, his family, his friends. And that's where you ended up with 50 Cent and Eminem last year. And Rihanna is a Rock Nation artist. Um, and it's also because of the deal that Pepsi um, gave up. Pepsi used to be the sponsor of the uh, Super Bowl halftime show. And now it's Apple Music, which means that there might be a new Rihanna album after Oh, at least a couple of years for sure. How long does this contract last? Because obviously this is going to continue. 
Yeah, it, it looks like that it, it's about one more year after this. Um, but it does make sense, though, because everybody's trying to skew younger. Um, mm-hmm. Apple Music is is getting into sports um, in a big way. You can now watch not only just the NFL, but Major League Baseball, and they're trying it with hockey at this coming season. So they're already um, they're already testing the waters with trying to, you know, diverse um, their audience a little bit and advertisers are always looking for the next generation um, you know and Metallica as good as they are Springsteen as good as he is they just don't fit the demographic of what these sports teams are looking for they're not looking for 35 to 50 year olds they're looking for 8 to 25 year olds who are on Snap who are on TikTok who are on Instagram and that's exactly where the uh, the preview clips of Rihanna um, practicing and during rehearsal, that's where they're going to be airing. It won't be on your network news. It's going to be mm. all on social media. So is it just a demographic thing or is there more to it than that? Because obviously, like you said, I mean, you know, uh, the Springsteen era and whatever, no, no one cares about what the old guys think anymore. Uh, they're already there. They are the audience. It's always about expanding the audience. So um, does this work? Is it working for them? Does the Do the ratings show it? Yeah, I, I I think a little bit yes, a little bit no. You know, we we've seen Fox and Disney and Paramount and NBC Universal in the U.S. Um, try to bring more viewers to their platforms, but tech companies like Apple and Amazon and Spotify have made a bigger play for content. We, you and I have talked a lot in the past about Spotify moving away from not just having music, but now they're into podcasts and now they're into audio books. So it seems like they're just looking for consumers. And I think that this is the way that it's going to go. Um, you know, because once you land the viewer watching 12 minutes of the Super Bowl, um, that's almost where it ends because the 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 weeks and months leading up to it, you're going to have to go to these various different platforms in order to get the inside look on it. And it's something that maybe the Super Bowl just doesn't do well. Um, and I'm not saying that they do, but like, you know, sometimes you got to look to the leaders of the tech community in order to kind of mush, uh, you know, to continue to move it forward. Uh, could it be, too, that the Super Bowl is just so big and no matter what everybody says and complains and has this debate every year, uh, everybody's going to watch. doesn't matter who you put up there. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, and, and as much as, you know, there are going to be a lot of people that said, well, you know, let's get a Taylor Swift who actually turned it down. She said that she's not going to be performing at the Super Bowl until she completes all of the re-recordings of her older albums, which she's number two in, and she's got four more to go. But even if you had a Springsteen, a Metallica, Justin Bieber, I mean, people that you think that would be the biggest artists in the world, they're still going to be 70% of the population is not going to want to see it. And most of them have a Twitter account, and they're just going to complain on Twitter anyway. So you're not going to win either way. But at least what you can do is try that the Super Bowl has done since last year is continuing the effort to make right with the African-American community. And, um, you know, with the whole thing with with the Colin Papernick situation and, um, you know, Rihanna was asked if she would perform 
a couple of years ago. She said no. She boycotted the NFL over the NFL's treatment of Colin Papernick. So now that that issue has kind of gone a little bit off of the wayside, the NFL needs that community. And this is the great way to get them kind of back on board. They already have the community of the players and now they need the audience, which is why that Jay-Z Rock Nation deal made a lot of sense. Eric Alper with us, music publicist and commentator. Eric, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too. Have a great rest of the week. We already talked to uh, uh, the Maritimes already earlier on in the show uh, and getting an update on what has been going on on the ground and power restoration and that sort of thing. But you might remember on Friday, I think it was, uh, we were talking to Allison Clements and she was, uh, well, her friend planning a wedding. And then all of a sudden, you know, a, a tropical storm or a hurricane comes in. What do you do? Well, you go where there's power, and the rest is history, as they say. So let's get an update and find out exactly how the wedding did go. Allison Clements is with us, proud Nova Scotian, and here now. Allison, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you for having me, Scott. It's it's good. We had power back, which really is a thing right now. We're very thankful to be one of the Nova Scotians that have power. But, of course, we're thinking of all the people in our province and the surrounding provinces as well that aren't as lucky. So um, uh, let's go back to the, uh, before the weekend, and I believe this was your friend's wedding, correct? Yes, my best friend of 30 years is tying the knot. And uh, so, of course, it was going to be out in this beautiful field with sunflowers and corn stalks, <laughs> and lovely things. Um, but, of course, you know, have to pivot that's the the word of the 20s obviously and yeah. uh, so we did and her now husband uh happens to be a volunteer fire department at the uniac and district fire department here in nova scotia so we said let's do it let's move it inside we'll do it the wedding where the reception is going to be so uh on friday when we talked i just got back from decorating and uh Saturday proved to be very interesting to get up home. It's an hour away from where I live, which is just 40 minutes west of Halifax. And uh, it was, there was a lot of down trees, wires. Um, thankfully, I only had to turn around once because the road was closed off due to a tree across it. But it was, it was a bit challenging to get around that day for sure. So by the time you were, uh, she was getting married on Saturday afternoon, the storm, storm had pretty much subsided for you? Uh, pretty much, we still had those high winds. Uh, yeah. Power was knocked out. Uh, so, if, if people know the geography of Nova Scotia, all like there's the southwestern part, so Bridgewater, Yarmouth, the mm-hmm. Annapolis Valley. Um, that part had power. It wasn't as badly damaged as it could have been. Um, in Hance County, where I was, it was power outages everywhere for the most hmm. part you know where we were at the fire hall they did have their generator running and we had no issue with power but the hairdresser there was no hairdressing salon for us this time we had um, the hairdresser came in with a straight iron and we set up you know the pull-up tables and all that the makeup oh, artist the same thing and as you can appreciate the lighting in a fire hall is immaculate for those things um but we had a time with it and of course they all brought their kids because um what else are they going to do? They had no power. Probably my favorite, you know, during Hans County when was um, someone said that they had brought their pet. And I said, like, oh, great. I love dogs. I love cats. I see it. <laughs> and so they brought, they brought over their bearded dragon 
and <laughs> it was wrapped in a blanket because <laughs> tropical pets or lizards cannot become cold. So they had to bring their bearded dragon to the prep for the wedding because they didn't want it to freeze. So that was interesting. So at that point, I said to the wedding photographer, hey, come over here, grab the bow tie. We're going to do a photo shoot with the dragon. <laughs> why not? That's hilarious. So uh, so this is a fire hall, and it is, you know, an emergency going on around you. Are, are the trucks in or out? Are they all out working somewhere? They, they were all in. They weren't called away just yet. So we got to use them for photo props, which thanks to the fire department for that. Um, but they, they were on call and ready to go. In the area in which we were in, the damage wasn't as bad, right. thankfully. Yeah. Um, the emergency crews in Halifax were everywhere uh, with the transformers that blew and such. But, no, we were lucky. The, the fire trucks were in. We did have some people pop in uh, who were going to charge their phones and things like that. But I think probably the takeaway I had is that there wasn't a question if people were going to show up, really. It was, yeah, this is what we plan to do during the hurricane. Of course we were going to be here because they knew we would have power. So it was a potluck feast. People brought their food. And, <laughs> so you know, about an hour after the reception, we dug in and, and had a good old-fashioned century potluck. That is great. So uh, as far as attendance, did most of the guests show up? I mean, obviously, it must have been, you know, an issue for some. Uh, did they all basically show up? Yeah, I think we had 115 RSVP that they were coming, and we ended up with about 70 or 80. That's so it was, a, it was a happening place. The bar was open. <laughs> and so it, was, uh, it was really the only place you could be in Mount Uniac and the surrounding areas that night. And there was really only a couple of us who were from outside of the area. So uh, the other bridesmaid came in from Prince Edward Island on Friday. Oh, wow. She has found herself staying a bit longer because really the only places over there that have power are the hospitals and uh, the comfort centers, and they're slowly starting to restore as well. But there was no point in her going home. So um, really, we just tried to make the best of it. And I think that's what Nova Scotians do in these times when mm. this isn't our first hurricane and certainly won't be our last either. So, uh, you know, we just we prepare for what we can. Right now, we're hitting that 72-hour mark where people are supposed to be prepared up to. So I think people are getting a little antsy. Right. Um, but, you know, you just do what you can and celebrate what you can. And uh, Andrea and Gary gave us a wonderful way to celebrate. Of course, during the wedding, we heard all these reports of things happening. The groom's aunt lost her host up in Neal's Harbor, oh, which man. is up in Cape Breton. It just washed right into the ocean. Thankfully, she wasn't in it. Um but, you know, even the night of the wedding, so the Friday going into the Saturday, Andrea and Gary had trees fall on their house. <laughs> so, Wow, what a contrast What a contrast of emotions for that day for them. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, and so they had a, had a honeymoon and chainsaw party the next day. <laughs> a chainsaw party for the honeymoon. There you go, Allison Clemens. We talked to her uh, before the weekend and talked about the wedding that is going to go on, and it did. And uh, despite everything, uh, they said yes. So everybody was uh, having a great time. Allison, thanks so much for sharing your story. Uh, very much appreciated. Be well. Good luck as you clean up. Many thanks, Scott. Anytime. Allison Clements, uh, proud Nova Scotian, talking about uh, her best friend um, getting married on the Saturday that a hurricane is coming in. And, um, well, let's go to the fire hall. And the rest is history, as they say. You make do with what you have. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Let's bring in Tim Powers, Chairman, Summa Strategies, Managing Director of Abacus Data. Forget the politics. Let's just get an update on the East. Uh, Tim, how are you doing today? Hope all of uh, your friends and family are doing well. Yeah, thank you, Scott. No, my um, most of my family's in St. John's, and thankfully it was generally unscathed. It's the far southwest coast, Port of Basque, which uh, I think people probably seen the images. Mm. I've, I've been to Port of Basque a number of times. The challenge out there, as as per the sad story of the one woman who was drowned, is many of the homes are right on the cliffs. And yeah. as you saw, people got pulled into the ocean. Some pretty severe damage out there, but uh, we're Newfoundlanders. We're resilient, but uh, still, nonetheless, it's it's been tough, I know, at home. And in Nova Scotia, Cape Breton as well, they got pounded. So uh, tough times in the Maritimes. Especially along the coast. It's amazing the difference between there and even inward. Yeah, and uh, and then the, 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 uh, Cape Breton itself is generally a fairly exposed island. So, yeah. and, and most people, as you would expect, right? That was the settlement pattern. Why are they by the water? Because they fish. They live near the water. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the fact that uh, people are still there um, makes them vulnerable in storms like this. All right, let's move on. Uh, politics of the day. Uh, a lot of people, you know, they're using boxing analogies when talking about JT and uh, Pierre Polyev, and, you know, I'm probably guilty yeah, of that, with too. with Domi Probert or something. That's it's right. It's a thrill in Manila. Something. <laughs> All right, but here we have the Conservatives saying that they're going to support the Liberal GST plan. Uh, well, for the most part, uh, what did they say? There's some um, uh, spending components they're not happy with. But are you uh, surprised at the love in here? I don't know if I call it a love-in as uh, actually some demonstration of some strategic smarts because they're going to vote against the other stuff. I mean, they were calling for, as you remember, a GST holiday. They're not going to get that. Uh, I think if they went against the rebate, as flawed as they may see it to be, they might lose the chance for some voters that they're targeting in there. So... I guess the other thing Polyev is trying to demonstrate is he's not as um, uh, a polarizing a figure necessarily as as people suggest. So it's fascinating, the little mechanics around all of this and who's actually being targeted, because I do think that there are some people who get the rebate that conservatives are interested in getting in the next election. If they voted against it, that might uh, stick in the craw of those people. Um, not supporting uh, new spending components of it. That includes dental care. Can they make hay? Uh, can they make progress if they're against this dental plan? I mean, my goodness, as Jugmeet Singh uh, has said, Pierre Polyev has had free dental care since whenever he started his career. Uh, so Jugmeet, by the way, when he was in yes. the I think. Uh, <laughs> exactly. But, so, uh, do they have? I mean, is this going to be? Is this going to be their death sword? I mean, are they going to have to jump on board I, here? I don't know. It depends what what comes forward after this. I mean, I think, um, you know, dental care is a tough one because it's so micro-targeted, and there are lots of Canadians, yes, who get dental care now. Uh, I think they would probably argue if Canadians have more money in their pocket, but it's not me for me to argue what they would argue. I'm just anticipating that. I don't think it'll be as fatal for them as the NDP would like the public to believe, but certainly... Uh, there will be people who said you didn't support dental care, so I'm not going to support you. But how likely were they to support the Conservatives anyway? So that's the calculation they're doing. 
Uh, obviously, um, you know, when you say you're going to start a, a program like dental care, similar to health care, um, uh, this gets lots of attention. However, we are still struggling with a health care plan that is crumbling, um, you know, across the country. So uh, how do we juggle both of these? Does one draw attention to the other? Why are we doing this when we can't fix that? Are we setting us, ourselves up for more failure with an ongoing dental plan? Do we make sure that we don't make? Yeah, how, look. I, I mean, how do we how do we make sure we don't make the same mistakes twice here? Well, and it's not one government's choice, right? Uh, provinces deliver all these services, so yeah. I don't think there's a good answer to that question. I don't think there's a clear answer to that question. I think that you're right to raise that question. It's unlikely that uh, it it will be smooth sailing. I think initially, it's a, as I read it on the weekend, there people are thinking about writing checks, basically. Uh, so it's hard to screw that up. Although, leave it to the government of Canada, Phoenix Pay System, they wrote some checks there. Hey, Scott, they didn't go so well. So, <laughs> you know, I, if, if somebody thinks that come January 1st and they're eligible for the program, they can go into a dental office and get dental work done and there won't be a hassle, I hope that's true, but I doubt that will be the case. All right, COVID-19 restrictions uh, finally being announced. It's uh, as of the end of the month. They will not be renewed. So uh, ArriveCan app is optional. Uh, mandatory vaccine has been dropped. Mandatory masking has been dropped. Random testing has been dropped. Um, your thoughts on this and the timing of it. I remember we were like four to six, eight months behind getting vaccine. Now it seems we're four to eight months behind all of this as well. Your thoughts on where we are? Uh, I, I mean, part of this is overtly political because this was a big target Polyev was going after, so the government will want to take that away from him now. They say they're guided by science. Well, good. I think science has been clear for the last little while that the risks are less. Um, I think the airline industry is breathing sigh of, of relief, and so, so are some others in the tourism sector. Uh, although it is September, so we're going to have a decline in tourism as we normally do this time of year. I mean... It, it, who knows if it was too long or not too long, but let's be clear, it's moving because of contemporary political pressure and a safer environment politically to do it. Although, as Dr. New said today, I think we've seen some COVID numbers on the rise, but I think vaccines have been more effective than perhaps the Arrive Canada app has. Uh, better for uh, the current government if this we just move on with this stuff, or better for them to drag it out and continually have our backs? Oh, they have our backs, Scott. Because uh, <laughs> yes. as Mr. Duclos, the health minister, said earlier, uh, it, uh, it's going to be, you know, they're, they're, they're not gone for, well, they could be gone forever, but they can be reinstated fairly quickly, as is, uh, as as and if necessary. Did we need uh, to go where we did, and did we need to end up with a trucker's convoy? Uh, considering yeah. where we are now, hindsight's always twenty twenty. but considering 90% of the population, including the truckers, were vaccinated uh, when this fight started, did we really need to even go here? Um. In other words, do we do do we need to have mandatory vaccination when we got so many people already vaccinated? Mandatory vaccination, Um, and I think that 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 was quite necessary. I think that's been proven to be right. I think the way it was all handled, that could have been done differently. From the way Trudeau spoke to the way the convoy all played out, I think all of that could have been done differently. 
So I think vaccinations, yes. Uh, how people were dealt with uh, for choosing or not choosing to get vaccinated, that, that could have been improved dramatically. All right, Tim Powers with us, Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing Director, Abacus Data. And Tim, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Take care. Bye. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right. uh, We talked last week. This is just bizarre. As uh, Ukraine continues to hold its own with Russia, uh, Russia has now... Uh, they're looking for 300,000 troops. They're basically holding a draft. First time they've done anything like this since uh, the days of World War II. Uh, that has provided uh, Russia with protests and a max ex- exodus uh, on certain borders as people try to get out of Dodge. But where do they go? Where are they going to the EU? And the EU, the EU is divided on what to do with Russians who are fleeing the country over the calling up of the reservists to fight. Let's bring in Arl Brown, Professor of International Relations, Senior Member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto, and with us now. Arl, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you. So we were talking last week about f- people that are fleeing Russia, Russians fleeing uh, Russia because they don't want to get drafted, basically, and the EU is divided on what to do with them. Uh, talk a little bit about this, and, and how do you balance out uh, Russians wanting to come to EU as opposed to, um, you know, I guess, staying home and resisting Putin? Clearly, there is opposition to the draft. This is not the Second World War. There's not that patriotism. Many people understand that this is an illusion, something that uh, was precipitated by uh, a leader, by Vladimir Putin, and they don't want to die for his illusions. The EU has a dilemma because they want to encourage dissent. They would like to offer shelter to those who oppose uh, Vladimir Putin, but if you have large enough numbers, numbers, they have to be vetted. One of the fears in the EU is that there would be agents provocateurs, uh, that uh, there would be uh, agents of the secret services coming through. So they have a bit of a dilemma how to balance uh, the desire to help and at the same time to protect themselves. Is security the main issue here, Oral? It is is a key issue and uh, it is also a dilemma of sanctions because uh, before the draft already a number of states uh, were not going to allow Russian tourists to go through the Baltic states because they do not want to uh, help this uh, aura of normalcy that uh, Vladimir Putin tried to create. Uh, Vladimir Putin tried to convince the population you will notice he never called it a war before, that this is just a special military operation that uh, this is not that significant. Their lives are going to proceed normally. And uh, eventually, uh, the leaders in uh, Kiev, uh, who are not legitimate, Vladimir Putin called them a bunch of drug-addled neo-Nazis. They would be overthrown. Recently, the Kremlin called uh, this conflict uh, a success and that everything was going according to the plan. Evidently, it hasn't been. 
Is this a turning point here, uh, Oral, with this call-up of 300,000 troops? Does that, has that seem to have gotten Russians' attention? Because prior to this, even with sanctions, what have you, Russians seem to support Putin. Uh, is this a turning point with the 300,000 troops and asking for them? Possibly, because the nature of dissent is that it starts small and it escalates very suddenly. Dictatorships, as I may have mentioned, very uh, strong and stable until all of a sudden they are no longer strong and stable, but it's unpredictable how and exactly when it happens. A great deal depends on uh, the actions on the ground. If Ukraine keeps winning, if uh, the Russian soldiers who are sent out uh, become casualties in increasing numbers, as they have been, this will percolate throughout the population. And that could make this a turning point. How? How? No, sorry, go ahead, Oral. Sorry, go ahead. Europeans begin to waver. And uh, there's a tremendous amount of dissatisfaction and disappointment in Olaf Scholz, who made great promises, seemed to have turned German policy around, but he hasn't been delivering. And if the Europeans uh, begin to diminish their support, for Ukraine, then Putin might be emboldened, and then this may not be the turning point that many hoped it would be. How is Putin reacting to those that are fleeing his country or even protesting, those that don't want to fight? How does he sell this when people are leaving? Very harsh measures have been introduced against desertion, against those who refuse to be recruited, and there are uh, uh, certain uh, communications that suggest that uh, protesters, for example, who went out on the streets and uh, were deploring this draft, uh, male protesters, uh, those who had no military experience, were immediately drafted and that they would be sent to the front. So Putin is trying to punish anyone who wavers, anyone who tries to oppose him. And uh, I think many Russians understand this, that if they're going to get out, they need to do so as quickly as possible because there may be harsher measures on the way against those who might be refusing the draft. Could this now be coming? Uh, could this now be becoming a domestic problem for Putin? He may have overplayed his hand, and this is why it is so essential that he needs to continue to fail on the battleground. Because if that happens, then more than likely he will have overplayed his hand. Ara Brown with us, Professor of International Relations and a senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. Aural, as always, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you for having me on. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Big news uh, today, and I remember uh, Mayor Jim Diodati, he, he wasn't going to count the chickens before uh, the eggs have hatched here, and he wanted to make sure he heard this uh, from the government, and today it was finalized. This uh, and None of the restrictions will be renewed on September 20th regarding uh, COVID-19, so that means uh, the uh, Arrive Can app is optional. Good luck with that. 
Uh, as well, the mandates uh, to have Americans vaccinated before they come in, uh, masking mandates, random testing, all of that is gone as of uh, September 20th, or sorry, September 30th, September 30th. And of course, you can hear him yelling all the way from the falls. Uh, Mayor Jim Diodati is with us of Niagara Falls and is here now. Jim, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well, and thanks for having me, Scott. So you didn't want to count the chickens before they were hatched. They're hatched now. Are you feeling better about this? Well, definitely. uh, I'm happy. I mean, certainly it would have been much better if it was before the tourism season this year. But I'm I'm grateful that at least it did happen and they removed all the other uh, restrictions. You know, just recently I took a train to Ottawa and I flew to Vancouver. And, you know, you can just hear the uh, cynicism, you know, when people saying you gotta wear your masks and 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 pu- the public is so much farther ahead than the public policy has been so i'm glad that we finally done the right thing we're finally following the sciences we've always said we would do and yeah i'm grateful i'm really grateful scott it, it seems the rest of the world is ahead of us whether it's you know uh <laughs> by yeah. like four to, by for like four to eight months whether it's getting the vaccine and waiting for it and i mean you know you tell somebody they need something and then that they can't have it of course there's going to be a demand and then you know getting out this end do you think it is too long and i know they're trying to take care of us and all this sort of stuff but let's be honest we're vaccinated there's over like you know we got 80 90 percent vaccination do you think we just drag this out too long oh there's no question about it and i've been talking to the experts because i don't pretend to be a, a medical expert so i talked to dr zane chagla the infectious disease expert at mcmaster in st joe's and mm. hamilton and 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 he along with many of his colleagues are all on the exact same page and i asked him help me understand the rationale behind this he said i i don't know what it is there isn't any it doesn't keep us safer i know it does not help the borders it makes things significantly worse Despite what um, uh, Minister Algabro was saying, it's been horrible. It makes things four times as long, and we couldn't understand what was going on. But um, but what I do know is, you know, in the beginning we did support it in the very very beginning because we wanted to keep Canadians safe, mm-hmm. and we said that we'd follow the science. But now we know that you know probably for the last year that the ninety nine percent of spread has been within the community, not across the borders. So it was senseless having the borders closed. And in places like Niagara Falls, where tourism matters, 20 million visits a year and 50% of our revenue comes from the U.S., it's been devastating. And that's after two seasons of being closed down. We need a, our, our, our hands are tied behind our backs. We need a fighting chance. We need good public policy to move forward. You talked about how you lose so much money to American tourists, and we had that conversation last week. Now that this has changed or will change as of the end of the month, do you expect Americans to, woohoo, the border's open, let's go across October, whatever, uh, or, or do you think this is going to take some time to build, back, to build back this traffic? Well, you know, Scott, that's the million-dollar question, and that's our big concern, the long-term residual negative effect of having the borders closed. And when I say closed, they were essentially closed. The stories, the media, the word of mouth has been overwhelmingly negative. It's been horror story after horror story to the point that Americans believe that it is closed. And the question is, how do we let them know that we're actually open? So my suggestion was that we get the federal and provincial tourism ministers together and bring in the prime minister, the premier. We do a grand reopening of Canada right here in Niagara Falls. We cut a huge ribbon roll out a symbolic red carpet backed by a big marketing campaign to the U.S. and other international uh, locations to let them know we are in fact open because 
if it's going to be the best kept secret, it's not going to help us because there's been too much water under the bridge. Too many people have uh, decided to bypass Canada for their leisure time. And our bigger concern is they've established some new habits, some new rituals, maybe found some new fun places, and they may not put us on the front burner of consideration. So we need a big marketing campaign. We need a big blitz and we need support from the other levels of government to do it. Is there support from the governments to do that? Is this getting any traction at all? Well, that's a great question. Everyone thought it was a good idea. And and I think that the, <laughs> the, the, the feds and the province uh, have been playing nice together uh, generally. So I'm hoping that that's what they're going to do. That's what we're encouraging them to do. A little too soon to say, but I'll be talking with our provincial tourism minister about the idea. And I'm hoping that uh, Neil Lumsden will reach out to the federal tourism minister and see if we can't get something going on and, and have a big blitz and a big marketing campaign. Because the tourism ministry has said, we don't want handouts. Just give us a chance. We'll fight. We're resilient. It's part of our DNA. We're always dealing with challenges. Never one quite like this, but this is one that we need some help. We need to let know that we're open. And we know that Americans love Canada. They love Canadians. They love visiting. We just need to let them know we're actually open again. And here's hoping this happens before next summer. I mean, here's hoping it starts before like the next summer season. Well, that's just it, Scott, because, you know, the uh, Pareto principle, which is the 80-20 rule, 80% of our revenue comes within 20% of the year. So all the money really comes during the summer, and that's the money that sustains the tourism industry through the rest of the year, through the shoulder season and the winter season when things are a lot quieter. And just like a, a squirrel collecting its nuts to, to, to get it through the winter, we're in the same boat. So we came off two devastating seasons. This was supposed to be the big rebound. It, it did happen for domestic tourism. That's back to pre-pandemic numbers, but not for American visitation. That's half of what it should be. So, yeah, we need action put into place now with a schedule so we can start marketing that we're open. All right, we're open. Well, as of September 30th, anyway. Uh, Mayor Jim Diodati from Niagara Falls, very happy today. Jim, thanks for the time. Good luck. Thanks for having me, Scott. Appreciate it. We certainly know what has happened over the weekend uh, out east and what they have gone through as uh, Hurricane Fiona uh, went up the east coast and uh, went through the Maritimes. And now it is uh, cleanup time and restoring power and looking for those who need help. Let's bring in uh, Dan Bedell, Communications Director, Atlantic Canada, Canada Red Cross, and with us now. Dan, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, I am, Scott. Thanks for your interest. Uh, Dan, first of all, let's talk about, I mean, I think the one thing that stands out is with a storm this big and, and the, the, the duration and such that more weren't injured or there weren't more fatalities. What can you tell us about those who were injured or are or have passed away? Anything more to offer there? Uh, not a lot more. I'm, I, I only know what's, uh, what's been reported by media and from other sources. I know that there uh, have been at least three fatalities uh, one in Newfoundland, one in PEI, and one in Nova Scotia that are being attributed uh, to the storm, and some other people were injured. Um, but uh, overall, considering its magnitude, uh, you're right, it, it could have been far worse in terms of uh, those kinds of impacts on people. So what are the biggest challenges now for the Red Cross? Well, I, I, I would start off by saying that initially I, I don't recall in my time with the Red Cross or, or in previous uh, positions uh, with other organizations the, uh, an event like a weather event 
that has affected five provinces at the, mm. you know, almost at the same time. That, that, that's a, a huge impact across all four Atlantic provinces, and there was also some devastation in the Gaspé region and the Magdalen Islands of Quebec, and I think maybe a little bit on the Quebec North Shore, too. You know, So we saw this in, in eastern New Brunswick, uh, the entire province of Prince Edward Island, most of which is still without power. Uh, about half of Nova Scotia, including a lot of devastation in, in Cape Breton and uh, the Sydney area, and and in Western Newfoundland, particularly in the uh, small community of Port of Basque, you know, which I think your viewers have probably seen some of the images from of of the damage there, where waves like literally just uh, came ashore, picked up houses and dropped them down again, broke mm. them to pieces, and some floated away. Uh, one of the fatalities I think was in fact involved someone who was trapped inside one of those homes. So the uh, the immediate needs, obviously, are for shelter for those who have been displaced out of their homes, um, uh, again, across a wide swath. The Red Cross has been involved in shelter operations, primarily in the Halifax area, uh, but also in, in Cape Breton and in Sydney. Uh, we were not able to get a team in immediately, like at the height of the storm, into Port of Ax. That's a small community at the the, the, the Western, uh, southwest tip of Newfoundland and Labrador, but we do have a team there now supporting uh, shelter operations uh, as they're required uh, in that community. And we've been assisting people who uh, need shelter in uh, across Prince Edward Island. And I know that our Quebec team actually deployed people into the Magdalen Islands before the storm hit so that they could be there ready to help too. So it's a big operation just on the shelter side, but as you said, now we're into uh, the aftermath and, and assessing damage and further needs and, and getting underway with cleanup and uh, and financial assistance to people. And that's another area where the Red Cross steps in and helps. Uh, obviously, we've been hearing uh, about the power outages uh, across the Maritimes. Some have come back, but it's still, uh, many are saying it's, it's going to take quite a while for that to happen. So, uh, obviously, that's going to put more strain on shelters as people get past that 72-hour period and still need, you know, still don't have power or, or the basic needs that uh, that they require to get by. On the first night of this, uh, in, in the two biggest shelters that we were involved with, which is one in a large one in Halifax and one in Sydney, Nova Scotia, uh, we had about a hundred people stay at each of those the first night. Uh, we could see those numbers increase because what will often often happen is, you know, some people are out of their homes just, you know, in the immediate aftermath of the storm, assume that uh, they can go back home, and then when they do get back home, they find that there is structural mm-hmm. damage or, or other factors that that make their place unsafe. In which case, then they'd have to start looking at alternatives again. So, you know, we we may in fact see uh, an increase in need for uh, shelter support. Um, we'll we'll adjust accordingly as we see that. But then on, on the flip side of that, as more and more people get their power back, of course, you know, they they, they can then go home and and hopefully most will in fact be able to you know, go home with uh, uneventful uneventful consequences that uh, you know that they don't need uh, further support, but. Um, uh, you know, there, there, there are some areas that, uh, you know, when I think, for example, of Prince Edward Island, uh, it's not a very big province uh, population-wise, but the impacts were literally from one end of that province to the other. There are hundreds of power poles down, and it's not like a group or a cluster of eight or ten poles where, you know, it could all be repaired in a few hours or a day or so. Mm-hmm. These are, uh, you know, across their entire network, a pole here, a pole there, um, some on main routes, some on side routes, 
it's it's going to take you know potentially weeks for some people to get their uh, power back, and it's a similar circumstance in, in parts of uh, Nova Scotia, particularly in and around Cape Breton. And uh, I, I know that there are still several thousand people without power in uh, Western Newfoundland. At last count, I saw I think it was around two hundred thousand in Nova Scotia, uh, about eighty some thousand in PEI, and several thousand in New Brunswick. I only deal with the Atlantic provinces, so I'm not really sure what the status is in Quebec. Um, and, and now that this storm has passed and the cleanup has begun, I understand a, a big part of this is just wellness checks, making sure that people who are in their homes, whether power or not or what have you, have the supplies, make sure that they've got what they need to get by for the next few days. You know, we have several programs that actually assist some people who, you know, storms and you know other factors aside, even all through the COVID pandemic, which is still underway, we developed a program where you know we connect our volunteers with seniors who are isolated in their homes, and and there's a lot of effort has been put into that in the last few days to you know to call those people. It's really it's like a friendly calls part. It's what it's called, friendly calls, and it's it's a little bit like a wellness check, but really it's just a friendly conversation with people who hmm. may not otherwise uh, you know be be connected to their community. But we have made an extra effort to call back to all of those clients. Uh, to, to the ones that we can reach, by the way, because many people still don't have phone service, mm. uh, j- just to check on them. But even in the shelters, there's a whole component of the Canadian Red Cross that's uh, uh, safety and well-being and, and mental health and psychosocial support specialists. And we are now bringing those into some of the shelters because some of these people, uh, you know, there's just so much stress and uncertainty. Uh, you know, they, they, they're suddenly out of their home. They're in a, an environment where they definitely don't want to be, you know, on a caught with a blanket in a shelter. Uh, they don't know if they can go back. Uh, they don't know how they're going to pay for the damage, you know, where to turn, um, you know, if insurance will or won't cover certain things, if they even have insurance. Um, you know, they just have so many questions and so few answers right now. It just adds mm. to the stress on top of, you know, not having power and probably not being able to reach out as, as, as they want to because, uh, you know, phone services is pretty sporadic in some places. How can the rest of us help? How can What can we do to help the Red Cross, Dan? Well, the one thing that we've done initially, because we know that there are going to be huge needs, uh, financial needs, uh, various uh, provincial governments, uh, the Nova Scotia government this afternoon, PEI as well, began to roll out some financial assistance programs, but those things do take time. Uh, you know, you, you do have to apply, you do have to meet their criteria and, and get funding back. Um, and... and the Red Cross knows that over the mid to long term, uh, even if they receive some support from government assistance programs or from uh, their insurers, if uh, you know they have insurable losses, there are going to be big gaps. You know, so we have opened an appeal across the country for donors. Uh, there have already been some significant donations made to that fund, and it will continue for a considerable period of time. And yesterday, the federal government announced that at least for the first month they will match any uh, donations made to that appeal. What we will use those funds for, and again, we, we have to be a little general or, or generic on, on the response right now because we're, we're still assessing where the greatest needs may be, and some of those aren't even known yet. But in general terms, we would use those funds to assist those with the uh, who are most significantly impacted in covering some of the costs that are not covered by those other things I talked about, like government aid or or insurance. And, 
know, how much we can help with that. It really just depends on, on how much comes in in terms of donations and then how many people need that support and, uh, you know, becomes a bit of a mathematical equation at that point. But that's, uh, that's over the longer term. So to your question, if Canadians and other areas want to help, one way that they could do that is to make a, a financial donation because it will be going to the people who really need help. They can, they can do that. There's three easy ways for that. They can just go to redcross.ca online. It will be their front and center, Hurricane Fiona, and just follow the links to do that. There's a toll-free number, 24 hours a day. People can call. It's 1-800-418-1111. And another option that a lot of people in, in recent disasters seem to really like for its simplicity is the uh, text-to-donate option. So anyone can just text the word FIONA, F-I-O-N-A, to 20222, and that'll generate a $10 donation to this uh, fund. And again, that will be matched by the federal government. All right, redcross.ca. To find out more, redcross.ca, that will be matched by the federal government, anything that goes to the Red Cross. Dan Bedell with us, Communications Director, Red Cross, Atlantic Canada. Dan, good luck moving forward. Thank you, Scott. I appreciate it. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Scott Radley is here. Scott, good to have you here. Hope you're doing well. Doing well, Scott. How are you? I'm doing very well. Your thoughts on uh, the federal government finally <laughs> dropping the COVID-19 uh, mandatory vaccination for Americans coming in. Uh, masking mandates are gone. The random testing's gone. The Arrive Can app is optional. Good luck with that. Uh, and it's all happening now. I talked to Jim Diodati, mayor of Niagara Falls. Many are saying this could have happened uh, uh, six months, eight months, uh, even a year ago. Uh, your thoughts on where we are now and following the science. Let us have a Scott Thompson show public pool, shall we? We should open the lines or open the email and people can send in their predictions of when these come back into effect, when the seventh wave begins, because I'm convinced that the government is, the federal government is not going to let this stand as is. If the numbers start to go up a little bit, they'll say, we got to go back at this, whether it's following the science or not. I'm, I am convinced we have not seen the last of this. Um, that being said, I mean, epidemiologists say there's variants, uh, you know, although this is spreading. And we, you know, there's one epidemiologist that said there's more cases now than there was this time last year. Well, that's because everybody and their mothers had it. Uh, that being said, last year it was Delta. This is Omicron. And it doesn't make us as sick because we're uh, vaccinated. So uh, unless there's a new variant that starts uh, making everybody really, really sick, um, which we haven't heard of at this point. I mean, I, I, you know, with a few cases, you're going to see hospitalizations going up, I guess. But let's be honest, this just not is not as deadly as it once was. I did not say that I thought it should happen again, or that the science <laughs> says it should happen again. I said nah, I think you're not it gonna will see it. happen again. And I just look at this like, uh, for whatever reason, and this is not a political statement. This is a, a true statement on any objective level. Our government was the last pretty much in the world to decide to do this. For some we're reason, the last. Yeah, but we're the last at everything, Scott. We were the last uh, to get yeah, the vaccination but, in. Now okay. we're the last to do this. And let's be honest. If you if you have a shortage of vaccine coming in, in other words, you can't bring in vaccine vaccination. And we were at least four to six months behind the UK, Europe and the United States on this. So all of a sudden you tell somebody they need this to survive. But now you don't have any. So forget me. 
mandates, just the scare alone made people jump into line to get this vaccination. Once everyone had pretty much already moved past this, we were still insistent on carrying on. For whatever reason, they're selling the scare. This particular government likes to maintain some oversight. Some would call it, others would call they're it. They're looking control. after us. They others got our back. However you want to interpret or what word, depending on your politics, they are the government that is most hands-on in this way, for better or for worse. I just don't see the likelihood that we have seen the last of this. Now, my question is going to be this, and I've said this from day one of the pandemic, Scott, from day one. If we say that masking and washing hands and social distancing kept people from dying in a pandemic, as well as the vaccination, Mm -hmm. if we say that all those things kept people alive, We do have flu seasons where if you look statistically over the years, we have thousands of people a year who die of the flu. I'm not saying COVID is the flu. Don't interpret it that way. I'm simply saying it's another type of virus that kills people. Why, if all these rules were necessary to get rid of any cases, to get deaths down to basically zero, why do we not have the same mandates in place for flu season? Um, And I don't want them. I don't want them. I'm simply saying, if you are arguing that vaccines and masks and distancing, all those things, again, my life, why are we not doing it? My reaction to that is Omicron is just not dangerous. End of story. Because we're fully vaccinated, Omicron just is not as deadly as Delta was. The flu kills elderly people by the thousands every year. Yep, yep, yep. No, that's true. Again, I'm not lobbying for this, Scott. I'm simply saying if we're going to follow the science, as we have been heard until we're blue in the face, the (laughs) science would tell us we should do these things because lives will be saved. So, you know, there's many do this. And there's many epidemiologists that say, you know, I'd like to see everybody still wearing a mask. And it's like, sorry, pal, ain't going to happen. I mean, Mm -hmm. once the danger's over, I'm out. I mean, I mean, when if there's a danger, if it's saving lives, that's one thing. But once we get to a point with so many of us vaccinated and the hospitalization rates as low as they are, it is really time to move on. Now, do our federal politicians, now that all these rules at the borders and stuff have been dropped, do they get to stop the performance art of wearing masks every time they're in public, except when they're not wearing masks in public? What about the Freedom Convoy? Was that all for nothing? Scott Radley with us. After the the Prime Minister was singing karaoke, moistly near people, he was with the Prime Minister of New Zealand even further away wearing a mask. I I don't get it, but we're following the science, I guess, so whatever. It's all about socks and selfies, Scott. It's all about the show. Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up right after the 6 o'clock news. You can read them in your Hamilton Spectator. As always, Scott, thanks for the time. Have a, have a great show tonight. Hey, can I just say, uh, today yep. is segment number two of Mayoral Monday. Two weeks ago, we had Andrea Horvath on for most of the first hour talking about her platform. Tonight is Keenan Loomis. So if you have not engaged in the election yet, please stick around for, for that. I'm not engaging until October 1. Just saying. Thanks, Scott. Have a great show. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Thanks for listening. As always, greatly appreciated. Uh, And as always, we leave it to you. I hope we have one. The taxpaying customer to have the last word. Well, Steve called in earlier today to say, remember after 9-11 in Gander when Newfoundland took all the Americans in? Wouldn't this be a good time for the Americans to pay some of that back with Hurricane Fiona? Something to think about.